Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. these last few weeks, we have been going through the Gospel of John. Um, and, and just as a little refresher, before the pandemic, John, or Pastor Mike was taking us through the Gospel of John, made it all the way to John chapter 11, and that's when the pandemic came. And so we kind of got knocked off track a little bit with our progression through the Gospel of John. And so recently, Mike opened back up the Gospel of John for us, starting in John chapter 12, and then Gus preached, and then last week we considered together um, the middle part of John chapter 12, and so we finish in the 12th chapter today. Um, And just as a reminder, we know what has been going up till this point. Jesus has been saying a lot of things, and in in the last passage we read in verse 27 and 28, Jesus expressing a true heartfelt authentic plea before the Lord. He says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he resolved to say, Father, glorify your name. What we'll do today, I want to first read for us John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. And then we'll consider together three aspects of belief that this passage focuses on. And, and we'll, we'll use these three different aspects of belief that, Jesus, that, that the passage focused on to, to resolve, to focus on a question that we'll consider with each other at the end. And so, again, we'll have three aspects of belief, and then we'll focus on the end of the message on a question that we should all, we all need to consider together. So if you'll read with me starting in John chapter 12, verse 37. And I'll start in verse 36 for context. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus spoke those words. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And then these are Jesus' last words in his public ministry. And he cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father has told me. The reason why we're focusing on these three aspects of belief And if you picked up on it, as we read through this passage, there's eight times where the word believe is used. It's obviously, as the Holy Spirit, it's obvious that as the Holy Spirit was inspiring John to write down this section, this passage of scripture, that it's belief. It's believing in specifically Jesus Christ and and what types 
of beliefs that don't line up with Jesus Christ, why that is, it's, it's obvious that belief was the thing that we're made to really focus on as we look at this passage. So as we do that, the three different aspects that we'll focus on, first being unbelief. The second thing is vain belief, V-A-I-N, vain belief. And the third thing is true belief. So to start, we'll look at the first thing, which is unbelief. In verse 37, right after Jesus hid himself, and a little side note, something that I find very fascinating and amusing throughout all of the Gospels, Jesus made a habit out of doing this. Every time that he would, not every time, many times when he would speak out truth, normally it was times when he would say things that were about himself, calling himself the Son of Man, calling himself God, saying things that that would have directed a lot of attention to himself. Often people would would say, man, we need to try to catch him, we're going to arrest him, have him killed, or have him tried. And then often in the Gospels it says that, that he would evade them, or just slip away, or escape. And I'm, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Jesus how he did that all the time. His ninja move of just escaping and evading people. It was obvious that he did that so that he could continue to fulfill the purpose that God sent him there to fulfill so that his ministry wouldn't be cut short. But here at the end of his public ministry, we see that right after he had said these things that we mentioned earlier, he expresses this inward Sorrow and an authentic plea, Lord, save me from this hour. But I've come to this hour. This is the, this is the reason why I've come, is to, is to be separated and to take on sin and to die and resurrect. He resolves to say, Father, glorify your name. And then God speaks from heaven, I will glorify it and I will glorify it again. Right after this, Jesus says the kind of death that he was to die, lifted up on a cross, put into the grave, lifted up to be ascended to heaven after having overcome by ways of resurrection. He retreats. And I would argue that based off of the fact that John inspired John, rather God inspired John to write verses 38 through 40 in quoting Isaiah, I would argue the reason why Jesus retreated, even if it was for a moment, was to really reflect on Isaiah, the prophet of Isaiah. We get these two verses here that are mentioned from Isaiah chapter 53 and Isaiah chapter 6. We'll unpack that here in a moment. I believe that Jesus retreated to to really reflect on what the implications of what the prophet Isaiah wrote were so that he could say what he said in verses 44 through 50 to close out his earthly public ministry. But if you look at verse 37 with me, We read, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So many signs. We see this example all over the Old Testament. If we were to read through the book of Acts and get to Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, who is a Gentile, is standing before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin would have been made up of a combination of Pharisees and Sadducees and led by none other than the high priest himself. And Stephen, a Gentile, a non-Jew, is taken before the Sanhedrin to give an account to the things that he has been preaching and proclaiming, namely the, the kingdom of heaven in accordance with the good news of Jesus Christ. And he goes on this prolonged speech talking all about the history of Israel. He's like, I'm a Gentile, and I'm going to give you a little history lesson, Jews. He talks all about the history of, uh, of Israel, how they were brought out of Egypt, and, and how yet they still moaned and groaned and rejected God. And then they were brought through the Red Sea, and they still, after having come out of that, said a few days later, like, oh, it would have been better if we were in, Israel, or in Egypt, because then at least our stomachs would be full. And then he brought you through the, through the land, through the Jordan River, and into a land where, that was flowing with milk and honey, and, and the tabernacle was, was, was put into place so that worship could be instituted for all the people of Israel. And throughout this whole process, God's Shekinah glory was present through the cloud of, by day and the fire by night. And when the tabernacle was established, the glory of God filled the temple. And, and, when, and when the temple was established under King Solomon, the glory of God filled the temple. And yet, 
All of the Jews throughout history continued to turn around from the signs and wonders that they got to behold with their own eyes, and they moaned and they grumbled against God. And he finishes his prolonged speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 through 53, saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's like, yeah, maybe I'm not circumcised because I'm a Greek, but you're uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, yet did not keep it. Lord, just give me a sign. I don't know how many times I've said that prayer in my life. I know in, in high school, especially before I really resolved, uh, before I, well, I was 18 years old, right before my senior year, that was the point in my life where I really said, and I've, I've not been perfect, so don't mishear me. I've sinned a lot since then. But that was this, the, the point in my life where I said, okay, Lord, I'm committing myself to you and I'm asking you to use my life for whatever purposes that you deem necessary. I'm tired of living according to my flesh. I just want to surrender completely to you. Use me. I did that when I was 18 years old. But before that time, I cannot tell you how many times I would say things like, Lord, man, if you would just like, send me a sign. Or if you would just do this one thing. I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room that can relate to that. If you would, if you would just answer my prayer in this way. Or if you would handle and work out that situation in this way, because it seems like that would be best for me. Or, or if you would just show me something, just throw me a bone here, Lord, then I'll, I'll be your man. I'll never sin again. I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. Just send me a sign. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23, Paul writes, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but the cross of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. Because in Jewish culture, according to the law, to be hung on a tree is a curse. And so for someone to say that the Messiah, the, the very Son of God himself, the one, the promised one that's been prophesied for centuries and centuries is going to be lifted up, that is utmost heresy. Because you're saying that the Son of God, the Messiah himself, is cursed? And that's why Paul writes in Galatians that, yes, he became accursed. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that he, in exchange for our sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. To Jews, that's, that's crazy. How could you say that God is, is cursed? It's a stumbling block for me. And for, for Gentiles, for the Greeks, I mean, if y'all didn't know this, the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and it's, it's awesome that it was written in Greek because the time in history when the New Testament was written, it was during the Roman Empire, and the Greek language in and of itself is an incredibly precise language. It's awesome that God chose that the New Testament would be written in Greek because when we study it and look at it in its original form, you can, you can see the really with the mathematical precision that all the, that all the authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit write with. And it leaves nothing up to question. Yes, our finite little pea-sized brains question a lot of it, but it is very precise. Greek culture is, it, 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 it was proud. It was proud in how it prided itself. We'll say that. It prided itself in, in how philosophical they were. Even today, we still employ dozens and dozens of different means of argumentation and philosophy that's used that all comes from Roman culture. And so for someone to come and go talk to a Greek who prided themselves in philosophical wisdom and say, like, yeah, our God, you know, you have all these temples all over the Roman Empire that are constructed to different gods and you give sacrifice to them. Our God, our God, our God's going to die by crucifixion. They're like, that, that's dumb. That is completely foolish. 
You're telling me that your God is going to die the death, the most humiliating and excruciating death that our culture has to offer? That's your God. <laughs> Silly. But we know the nature as to what, I say we, we who know Jesus Christ, we know the nature as to why that kind of death was necessary. It was to paint a clear picture of our depravity, to show us our desperate need that we have, the need that we have to be saved from our own destruction, to be secured for eternity with God. Paul finished his dialogue there in 1 Corinthians, the whole foolishness and wisdom thing in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, by saying, the natural person does not accept the, the, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually understood. The spiritual, person's, the spiritual person judges all things and is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? So it's rhetoric. He's using a rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. Ah, but look, look how he ends verse 16. But we have the mind of Christ. God gives us his mind. He gives us the mind of Jesus Christ by the power of, Holy, of his Holy Spirit so that by means of Holy Spirit revealing to us truth, we recognize I am doomed without this truth. And then we turn and we say, I receive this gift of grace that you've given me in Christ Jesus. That can only be understood. That can only be spiritually understood. It can only be understood by someone who is given this incredible gift of faith to understand that. Are y'all tracking with me? If you're not tracking with me, we're going to continue to unpack that. And bigger than that, if you're still not tracking with me, I'm going to say something pointed here. So if it offends you, I'm glad, because this is important stuff we're talking about. If you're not tracking with me, it very well might be because you're not saved. Or maybe I'm being too nuanced, and we'll, be, we'll get more clear as we go. But, but, but these things that Scripture talks about are super, super important. And so if these things offend you, I'm glad, because it's important for us to talk about it. This is, this is a good segue into our next verse. If you go back to, if you're still in John chapter 12, verse uh, 37 and on. So many signs, they were done, but they still didn't believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is from Isaiah chapter 53. It's, a, it's the same chapter that we referenced last week. If you know that chapter, Paul, John rather, is, is quoting the beginning, verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 53. And if we're to continue reading in verses 2 and on, this is a prophetic chapter that's talking about Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Isaiah wrote, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. This is all about Jesus, guys. That, that we should look to him or be attracted to him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yet we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jews, oh man, that's heresy, that's cursed. Gentiles, that's foolish. That's humiliating. Man, esteemed him not. And here's the gospel. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Put your name in replace of our. But he was pierced for Drew's transgressions. He was crushed for Drew's iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought Drew peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's two things. Isaiah anticipates how strange and contradictory it seems that this suffering Messiah, whose visage is marred more than any other man, is at the same time securing salvation 
and procuring cleansing for the nations. Who has believed what he's, heard, what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This, this, this phrase, arm of the Lord, is used throughout the whole Old Testament to describe the mighty arm of power that God would work with. The arm that, that saved Israel from their, from their persecutions, that saved Israel from their bondage and slavery, that brought Israel out of uh, out of exile in Babylon. It's, it's the arm of power that we see God that's displayed throughout the whole, the whole Old Testament, throughout the whole New Testament. So it seems like a paradox here that as Jesus is, is, is taking on this lowly form, being crushed for our iniquities and taking on our stripes because of, because of our sin, he's taking on our stripes so that we could be good. He's described as it's described as his arm, the arm of the Lord, that which is being revealed. And then in verse 39 in John chapter 12, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This is from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. If you were to go to Isaiah 6, and look at verses 1 through 9. We've referenced this story before as well. It's the, in the year of King Uzziah, I saw, that, this is what Isaiah wrote, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And as this narrative goes on, we see that, that, that Isaiah looks at the throne, and around the throne are four living creatures, and all they did day and night was sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's the same song that, that John had a heavenly vision of, and, and he got some perspective of in Revelation chapters 2, 3, and 4, or chapters 4 and 5. Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the only response that Isaiah knew that was required because he, he experienced the holiness of God was to fall flat on his face and say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips living amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king of glory. My eyes have seen the perfect. My eyes have seen the holy. And the only thing that I, the only feasible conclusion that I can come to is that I'm doomed. And then an angel takes uh, a coal from, from the altar where the, the fumes are being lifted up to represent prayer, being lifted up before the Father. An angel takes this coal and he comes over to Isaiah towards his face. <laughs> so Isaiah's like, yeah, I'm about to die. And it touches his lips. And then this word is spoken over Isaiah. He says, your sins are forgiven, your iniquities are atoned for. And then a question is posed. Whom shall I send and who will go for me? Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. The only natural response from someone who's truly come to realize the extent of what they've been saved from and who Jesus, and who Jesus truly is, the only reasonable response to that is for someone to say, I, I, I'm yours, here I am, send me. Not signs, not wonders, not wisdom, God's gracious in using these things to, to demonstrate his mighty power and, and to give us things to grab onto and to latch onto so that we can have reasonable faith. But all it is that saves us and makes us right before God is our knowledge of how depraved we are and our knowledge of how good and holy and perfect he is. Understanding that there is no way for us to reconcile that on our own but then coming to terms with the fact that God has made it possible for everyone who believes to be restored back to perfect fellowship with him. That's, that's what brings us to the place where we're like, here I am, send me, because I just realized what you've done for me. I just realized what you've secured for me. I'm your guy, whatever you want me to do. Isaiah was not alone in seeing God's throne. Almost everyone in the Bible who had a vision of heaven or who was taken to heaven or who wrote about heaven spoke about God's throne. We already talked about uh, John in Revelation. He saw a throne. Ezekiel in chapter 1 and in chapter 10, he saw God's throne. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel saw God's throne. Sons of Korah saw God's throne, referenced in Psalm 45, right before they were judged. 
David saw God's throne, talks about it in Psalm 9. Job saw God's throne, Job chapter 26. The prophet Micaiah saw God's throne, 1 Kings chapter 22. In all of these situations, who is seated on God's throne? Come on, say it. It's God. Just say God. Who's seated on God's throne? It's God's throne, right? Jesus is a good answer, too, most of the time. But we're, we're talking about God the Father in all these instances. What's really cool, a little side note, in Revelation chapter 5, we see the lamb who was slain, who's also called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes into the picture. No one was worthy to take the scroll. He comes into the picture. And God, who's sitting on the throne holding a scroll that no one's able or worthy to open, Jesus, the, the lamb who was slain, approaches the throne. He's worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to open it. And then he secures his spot right there at the throne with the Father. And then that song that Isaiah heard in Isaiah 6, and then that song that John heard in Revelation chapter 4, the song changed. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy to receive all glory and honor and power and dominion. It's the kind of change that Jesus brings into the picture. Atheism teaches that there is no throne. That this is just a big, huge cosmic accident. That the only reason why we are even sitting in this building right now with lights that are working and metal and other stuff that can do smartphones and tablets, I don't understand that. And, all, all, and, and, and we have pages. It's, it's all just a sequence of random events that have piled up on top of each other. And we're here today just by happenstance. And really nothing that we do has any sort of eternal significance or meaning or whatever because eventually this, this huge burning ball of gas that we call the sun is going to go out and eventually this earth is going to cease to exist and none of it's going to matter anymore. That's depressing. I, I, had, a, I had a professor actually who was an atheist when I, in my philosophy class when I was at UTEP and he said that in a nutshell. And, and he stood up there and, and was quiet for a few seconds, and he said, that's probably, and he was, he was Irish. I'm not going to attempt an Irish accent, but he's, he said, he's like, that's probably why I'm, I struggle with depression. And everyone was just sort of like, ah. And then afterwards, I went up and talked to him, and I was like, hey, can we talk about the gospel? And we had a good conversation, but in, in a nutshell, atheism teaches that there is no throne. Humanism this is the way of the world. That teaches that man sits on the throne. You control your own destiny. You, just, you do you. Whatever is your truth, just work wholeheartedly in your truth, and you'll be good, as long as you just are true about whatever your truth is. and Just do whatever makes you feel good. That's what humanism teaches. Now, the, the word world that's used in the New Testament it has three different contexts. It's the word cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmology. or cos The cosmological argument is it's an argument that says that every, if, if everything that's in existence has some sort of cause, if every effect has a cause, that's what science teaches, that's what simple observation teaches, all, all we need to do is just go back and forth, cause, effect, cause, and effect, all the way back to the beginning of whatever the first cause was. And it's unreasonable to say that anything other than God was the initial cause. Because God exists out time, outside the, the aspects of time, space, and matter. And so only a being who exists out time, outside of time, space, and matter could be responsible for time, space, and matter even being a thing, right? But the word cosmos that's used for the world is three different contexts. It talks about the circle of the world, so planet Earth, where, where you and I live. It talks about the people of the world, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And that's the whole world. Some people try to argue that in that context, it's only talking about believers in the world, but that's bad, that's bad uh, exposition. Jesus is saying what he exactly said. God loved the world. God does not not love anyone. <laughs> he created all of us in his image and in his likeness. And he didn't do that just to hate. He did that because he loves us, and he sent Jesus because he loves the entire world. So in the third context that the word world is used in is to describe the way of the world. It's the, the, the sinfulness of the world, the, the, the flesh, 
how you and I are, are prone to acting in according to what is inherently not righteous, but what we were born into, which is to do whatever my own will wants. That's the way of the world. This is what humanism teaches, that we sit on that throne. And I would argue that is, we have all these examples that we just referenced throughout the whole Bible where we see God seated on the throne. The only, the only feasible, plausible, philosophically sound and wise way to respond when we come to the question of how should we consider our lives before God, it's necessary for us to take into account that it's God who deserves to occupy the space that we call our throne. God needs to sit on our throne in our lives. It's God who reserves the right to dictate to us how the world works, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to believe. It's God who should be seated on that throne in our own lives. Because after all, he sits in the throne that's over all of the universe. So we should adjust and make him Lord of our lives. If we continue looking at Verse 39 and 40, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. John emphasized that, it was unbe- that, that unbelief was because God acted in judgment upon those who refused to see his truth and turn to him. We see here that it's God who's blinding eyes and it's God who's hardening hearts. This word harden that comes from, obviously, Isaiah, but that's used in Greek right here in Isaiah chapter 40, is, is, it gets to this idea of a callus. I play guitar on all of my fingers right here. I have these little calluses on the, on the ends of, of my fingertips. And the reason why I have all these calluses on my fingertips is not because just one day I picked up a guitar and I had all these calluses. It's because over time of practicing and I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I've, I practice all the time, but over time playing guitar a lot and for years and years just continuing to play, it developed over my fingers calluses. A lot of believers will look at this passage and they'll chalk it up to this. God's either hardened your heart or he has softened your heart, point blank. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. But we see here is that this callousing, this, this hardening of heart, this, this being blinded from the truth, we are solely responsible for that having happened to us. Let's unpack this thought a little bit. Anytime we talk about issues pertaining to, to predestination and free will, I think everyone sort of gets all like, ah. they, they kind of get all tense and like, ooh, how do we unpack these things? I think the word of God is the only way for us to unpack these things, which I'm sure all of you agree with. So let's, let's look at this just a little bit more as we, as we continue to focus on unbelief. And then I will not spend as much time on the other ones because they, they aren't as hot topics, I guess. But go, to, go with me to Romans chapter 1, if you will. In verses 14 through 16, Paul writes, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is saying, I'm obligated to teach the gospel to everybody. Earlier, Jesus read for us from Romans chapter 10. It's not for us to determine who is going to heaven and who isn't going to heaven. There's no way for me to know that. And what, what Paul says in Romans 10 is that when we start to do that, we're belittling the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we're also doing is saying to an extent that we need him to do it again. He needs to come and live a perfect life and then die and then be raised again. So we're belittling the work of Jesus and we're saying that it needs to happen again when, we're, when we go around and try to determine who it is like, oh yeah, for sure hell probably heaven, hell, hell, heaven. That is not for us. to. And I thank the Lord that that's not for me to determine. But as Paul says right here, what we're called to do indiscriminately, we're obligated, not just called to, we're obligated to do this, just like Paul is, is to preach to everyone and anyone, whether Greeks or barbarians or Jews or Gentiles or freed or slave or rich or poor, we're called to minister to whoever it is that God, that God has put in front of us. 
He continues, and this is where we'll unpack this thought. Verse 18 in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They're all without excuse. All of us are without excuse. Scholars call this type of revelation that's being talked about in verses 18 through 21 general revelation. It's, it's the attributes of God that have been written in everything that God has created. We can look, we can walk outside and just look at everything that's been made. We can look inside and just see the precision that the human body functions with. And all of those are indicators that there is a creator who's responsible for things being that the way that they are in creation. We had a team that went last week or two weeks ago to the Grand Canyon for a mission trip. And I have had the opportunity to talk with Chris, who was one of the guys that went. And, and he said, like, oh, as, I, as I just watched, walked up to the Grand Canyon, my heart just kind of like stopped for a second. And I was like, whoa, man, God is so cool. That's what he told me. I'm like, yeah. That's the kind of response that this general revelation merits in a person. But because if we continue to read, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, here it is, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. He hardened them put scales over their eyes. Why? It seems so cruel of God. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, that which was created, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. God did not just simply harden people and arbitrarily harden people. You and I are responsible for this hardening that's taken place. Every single one of us in here before we were saved had scales over our eyes. We were deaf. We were mute. And, that's, and the only reason that that is true is because I willfully decided to sin. So I'm the only person that's responsible for my hard heart. I'm the only person that's responsible for my hard heart. But by the grace of God, he shone the light of Christ into my heart so that I could come to understand the truth. And what we've been called to do is do that with other people. The second thing is vain belief. These will go quick, guys. Don't worry. In John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43, John writes, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he goes on in verse 32 and 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This denial that happens with people who say they believe is a very constant thing throughout the whole Bible, especially the New Testament. If you were here on Easter, John chapter 3, Pastor Mike preached on Nicodemus and Scholar, most people believe, agree with this, that the reason why Nicodemus went to go visit Jesus at night is he, got, he had a little bit of fear in him. He was a Pharisee, and there's probably a little fear in him about, you know, like, hey, I know there's been some stuff that's been getting around about this Jesus guy, and personally, it's really doing a number in my heart and mind, and I really need to seek this out. 
But I'm also kind of scared on what that might give off to all the people who look to me to be a religious leader in this area. So he visited Jesus at night. I mean, John, the reason why I think it's safe for us to assume that is because he's, he's lumped together with Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter, this is right after Jesus was killed and his body was taken off the cross. He's, Nicodemus is put together with Joseph of Arimathea in John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, they were kind of secret about it was that they believed in. After Jesus was crucified, they they kind of came out into the light. And they're like, all right, I'm going to start to actually function in a manner that accords with what I say I believe in. There's a lot of people who say they believe. Jesus says in his his Sermon on the Mount that the demons believe that they shudder. So are you this classification of somebody who says that you believe, yet there's no outward expression of that belief? I would argue that that belief is vain. And I would even argue that it's possible that even though you say you believe, you actually don't really have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you did have a true relationship with Christ, and this is based off of basically the whole New Testament, the teachings of Jesus, the great commandment, if you say that you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, yet there's no fruit from your life, there's no outward expression of that faith, how can that actually be true? Faith works. Faith looks a certain way. This is what the whole book of James is about. People get it confused often and they interpret James as saying like, oh no, no, if, if, you're, if you do enough faithful things, then you'll be good before God and you'll be saved. It's the opposite of that. At the end of chapter one, he says, this is what true and undefiled pure religion is. It's to care for orphans and widows. But before that, he says, if your heart is not for the Lord, your religion is worthless. What you believe in is worthless if there's nothing that's, that's actually taking place as a result of what you believe in. So this third and final type of belief, the type of belief that Jesus was ready to communicate to everyone after he escaped for a few minutes to probably reflect on Isaiah chapter 53 and Isaiah chapter six, the kind of belief that Jesus is is challenging all of us to exhibit. This is the kind of belief that, that, that we would express if we truly did have a functioning relationship with Jesus Christ. Look, look with me. Verse 44. No, and as a, as a side note, like that doesn't seem like, that seems fair, Drew, because I, I really believe. I just, I, I just don't know if I'm really willing to give up. And I'm like, well, examine yourself to see if you're really of the faith. <laughs> That's what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians. Examine yourself. Examine your hearts. I'm not your judge, guys. I'm just trying to be faithful to what the scriptures are telling us. And Galatians 1.10 says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I could not be a servant of Christ. It's pretty, pretty cut and clear and dry. The last thing is true belief. So we talked about unbelief, which separates us from Christ. We talked about vain belief, which separates us from Christ. Now let's talk about true belief. Verse 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. We know that when Jesus was sent to this world, he was given these commandments. Jump ahead. Look at verse 49 and 50 with me. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. So every, every single thing that Jesus did in his entire life, every activity that he participated in, every miracle Every, every, every mighty act of power that was displayed and demonstrated before those who were following him and watching him. Every time that he 
like ninja evaded people, all of these things that Jesus did, when he escaped to spend time alone with the Father to get his marching orders, he fulfilled them perfectly. The commandment that was given specifically to Jesus, he fulfilled it perfectly, 100%. Amazing. That's amazingly good news for us. So then in verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. To be clear, the commandment that Jesus was given to, to do the work, to say the things that he said, to give the Sermon on the Mount, to, to commission disciples to carry forth the torch that would, that would ultimately light the whole world on fire. Where now we are today, people from every tribe, people from every tribe, tub, and language will become, at some point in the future, followers of Jesus Christ. He did all of these things perfectly. The commandment that Jesus perfectly lived out is for our eternal life. And I love how the word is is used in Greek. It's not shall be. It's written in the present active indicative, meaning that right now, right now, our eternal life is here. So we don't gather and worship and seek God and do the things that he's told us and suffer regardless just because of a, of a future hope. That's a huge motivation in part. But our eternal life has begun and it's been going on since the moment that you gave your life to Jesus and it continues to go on right now and it will continue until either you die or if Jesus meets us in the air when he comes back for his bride as we sang about a few minutes ago and it will continue to be so for all of eternity when we worship him in heaven. It's been secured for us. And Jesus finishes by saying, what I say, therefore, I say just as the Father has told me. That's why he's able to say, if you believe in me, it's really not me you believe in. It's, it's, it's a belief in the one who sent me. And when you see me, it's, it's really not just me that you're seeing, but it's, it's, it's the one who sent me that you're seeing. Because I've done everything that he's told me to do perfectly. That's who you're believing in. These are the implications of the gospel. So should we, to finish, verse 46 and on. I have come into the world as light. Everyone say light. He answers the question from earlier about who the light is. The light will be with you a little bit longer. He says, I have come as the light. I have come as the light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What he's saying here is if you hear my words and you don't keep them, that's not the reason why you're judged. We're condemned because of our sin. We're not condemned just because of something that Jesus said that we didn't respond to. We're condemned because of our sin. But that condemnation continues if we don't respond to these words that Jesus is telling us. Are y'all tracking with me? We're condemned not because of Jesus saying this. It was always true. But if we don't respond in true belief and saving faith, all that happens is that our condemnation continues, which is why we have to preach it to everyone, guys. How will they know? Who are they? It could be anyone. I don't know. But how will they know unless someone goes to them and preaches? And how will someone go to them and preach unless they are sent? That's why it's written how beautiful are those, the feet of those who bring the good news. That's why our church loves going places to tell people about Jesus. That's why our church gives a lot of money to go and support ministry that's happening in different countries, in different parts of El Paso, and the nations all over America. is because we believe this. Wholeheartedly, we believe this. But let's not just believe it for like an institution. We need to believe this for ourselves. We need to take personal responsibility in our own spheres to say, how will my brother or sister that doesn't know Jesus know if I don't tell them? How will my coworker know unless I, I take that step of faith and I say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I'm going to put myself before them and minister to them the truth. Because how will they believe unless I tell them about it? Why don't we stop assuming who's on their way to hell and just assume that everyone is if I don't tell them about Jesus? Because that's the responsibility we've been given. I finish with this. In Matthew 5, 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to us an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly profound thing. Throughout the whole Gospel of John, he calls himself the light. John writes in his, in his letters to the churches that we're supposed to walk in the light. And then right now, at the end of his public ministry, we're realizing, like, oh, the light, it's Jesus, it's the goodness of the gospel. But man, Jesus tells us this in Matthew. This is incredible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Put it but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's the question, brothers and sisters. What are you going to choose today? I told you we've considered these three areas of belief. There's unbelief, there's vain belief, and there's true belief. And that question that we're considering today is what? What are you going to choose to do today? Just continue to walk in ignorance and unbelief? Well, I don't believe in any of that. Okay, the fool says in their heart there is no God. You're a fool. You're hearing me right now. How do I know if I've been hardened or if I'm supposed to be? I would argue you're here right now. You've heard the message of the gospel. You need to respond are you going to respond with vain belief? You're like, well, I believe these things, Drew, and I like that, you know, you're passionate about it or whatever, and like, hey, amen, brother, but it's not really for me. True faith looks a certain way. You need to examine yourself and see if you're really in the faith, because if you really are in the faith, I would argue that that needs to look a certain way. In true belief, we should be a light that shines that people can ignore. Are you tracking with me? Just like Jesus shone in the darkness, so have we been called to be light that shines in the darkness. If, it's your choice, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's be people who believe in our heart inwardly, but then confess that truth outwardly until we die or Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you to do this. We cannot, we cannot see this come to pass in our lives and in the people that you've put in our lives without us being surrendered to you. Lord, we know that you don't need us, but in your grace, oh man, it's your grace, Lord. You've made it that you've allowed us to be a part of seeing people come to know you, So I ask that we would not be satisfied in unbelief, but that we would be uncomfortable. Even more so, for those of us who do believe, I pray that we would be extremely uncomfortable in vain belief. Lord, if there's someone in here who goes to bed tonight who's just trying to get that out of their mind, I just ask that you would mess with them. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet, children who would walk in what we believe. Seeing your name glorified. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.